The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Now we have approaching 100,000 Ukrainian refugees in the country. That number is going to be surpassed if the current trends continue. But could it be that effectively an unofficial cap is going to come in place because of a lack of available accommodation? In a moment, we're going to talk to Angie Goff, who's co-founder and chief executive of Helping Irish Hosts, which has done great work in helping Ukrainian people find places to live in Ireland. But first, Jack Horgan-Jones and the political staff of the Irish Times has an extraordinary report in today's newspaper about a row at Cabinet last night, particularly between Roderick O'Gorman and Michal Martin. Jack, what happened? So, this has been building for some time. There has been a long-standing criticism of the government's approach to housing both international protection applicants and those fleeing the war in Ukraine, that it has all landed more or less entirely on Roderick O'Gorman in his capacity as the Minister for Integration. And for some time, he's been trying to get more help from his Cabinet colleagues to come onto the pitch. But rather unsuccessfully. So, a couple of weeks ago, he started working uh, with officials on a proposal that would effectively change the nature of the accommodation offering here. The most eye-catching part of that would be time-limiting the accommodation that will be offered to Ukrainians on arrival or those fleeing the war in Ukraine. At the moment, they're effectively put up if they need it by the state in perpetuity. The proposal is that they would get 90 days of state-backed accommodation and then a very small number of them would probably be given, if they were in vulnerable circumstances, modular or something like that. A small number would go to pledged accommodation, but a much larger number would effectively go into the private rental sector. And while this seems draconian, in some ways the argument from the officials is that it has to be because the flow is so great that you have to kind of make the offering here less attractive. When he raised this at Cabinet, it wasn't a proposal for decision, he was just briefing the Cabinet, there was strong pushback, as you say, from the Taunashta, who raised concerns about the impact on children, for example, who would, you know, be in a place for 90 days and then presumably somewhere else, what would the impact on their education be? But I think politically, more importantly, he was saying, what would the impact be on the wider housing and homelessness crisis? And that's where this row, I think, is boiling down. Who takes political responsibility? Who takes organisational responsibility? And, you know, what, where, who, who has to carry the political cost of this crisis on top of all the other crises? But if people were to be removed from state accommodation, be that tents, as happens in some cases, or the various hotels which have been taken over all around the country and other places, where would they go? And how would they be able to afford to pay the rents for anything that might somehow become available? Well, I think this is the point. So, I mean, it, it looks, as I said, like the vast majority would be asked to go into the private rental sector. And as me and you and everyone else in Ireland knows, the private rental sector is extremely expensive and it's extremely difficult to find somewhere to live. Um, so I think the idea would be that this would act as a, as a strong disincentive to coming um, because there is a view in wider officialdom and shared at government level that the Irish offering, as it's described, the combined impact of accommodation supports and welfare supports is not aligned with other European countries and put quite simply, we're kind of too generous and that, that that's acting as what is colloquially termed a pull factor. And tell me about the welfare rates, because my understanding is, is that what we're paying people from Ukraine is way more 
in many cases, vast multiples of what's available in other European Union countries. Yeah, so there was a comparative study done on this back in February. So this has been on the boil again for some time, going all the way back to last October when they first kind of trimmed the offering and they commissioned a comparative study. And that did find, you're right, it found that, you know, the, the, the benefit level here was a little bit higher. Against that, you do have to remember that it is a higher cost economy uh, than many other European countries. So you would expect that our welfare rates are higher. And you also have to remember that baked into the Irish response to the war in Ukraine has been this wider issue of our neutrality and the fact that we won't provide any military aid to Ukraine. So part of our response has been on the humanitarian level and on the political level. So it's kind of seen within government, I suppose, within the wider EU milieu as part of the way that Ireland is keeping up with the rest of the bloc in terms of supporting Ukraine. I'm going to bring in Angie Goff. I'll be back to you in a moment, Jack. Angie, as I said, is co-founder and chief executive of Helping Irish Hosts. Very briefly, Angie, you have been on the programme with us previously, but can you remind our listeners as to what it is your organisation does briefly, please? Well, we empower people here to host displaced people in their homes. And at the moment, 21% of all the Ukrainians who are here are living in host homes and pledged accommodation. So we resource people, give them information. It's a peer-to-peer support network. But we do, we work with the Irish Red Cross as part of a consortium of partners to activate the pledges that people made way back then in March of last year. And we've grown that tiny proportion of people who are hosting to now 21% of Ukrainians who are living here are doing it in Irish family homes. And Angie, are those Irish families... Sorry, are those Irish families keeping people almost permanently? Because did a lot of people enter into this thinking, well, it might be for three months, six months, a year, and now find that it's turning into a sort of a permanent arrangement? Yeah, so, I mean, we all did that, right? I speak as a host myself, and we jumped in not knowing how long it would go on for. But most people are hosting for between six and 12 months. The thing is, though, (laughs) we surveyed 8,000 hosts in September, and 1,500 responded to the survey. And uh, 84% of those people intend to extend their pledge, and 44% of them intend to extend it indefinitely. And 96% of people who have hosted or are hosting have found it to be a really positive experience. So there's an upside there of what, there's this gorgeous community response that has been a a surprise response, but now represents a huge part of the government's um, accommodation strategy for... But Angie, it it only accounts for about a fifth of the people. That leaves four-fifths who have to live elsewhere. Now, have you seen many Ukrainian people moving into the private rental sector themselves using money that they may get from actually taking on well-paid jobs? I mean, it's so difficult. 50% of the Ukrainians who are here are working. So 20, 30% of them are kids, are under 17. 50% of the working age population who are here are working. And 50% of those, Matt, are working two jobs. So there is definitely a desire to be independent, to integrate as much as you can. There's certainly an increasing realisation that this is probably where life's going to be for the next few years. The war is not ending. And 40% of Ukrainians who are here don't have anywhere to go back to. That's how significant the proportion of people who really have nowhere to go back to is. 
and we kind of forget that as we move on um as we move in through like 20 months into the conflict to, to this situation the war continues in ukraine and it shows no sign of abating so it's not surprising that people keep coming 655 the week before last 600 the week before they're not coming but they're coming because they have to come the vast majority of those people who still arrive here. And what do you think would be the impact if the government was to say 90 days of state-supplied housing but after that you're on your own? I don't know. I don't know if... There's no data to, to, that shows why people choose to come to Ireland beyond they have to get out and they have, a, have to go somewhere safe. It's an attractive country to come to. It's English-speaking. Yes, social welfare provision is good, but the people—we don't think people are in any doubt as to the cost of living here. So I don't know if that answers your question, Matt. But no, I think that's—it's it's an honest mm-hmm. answer. Okay, Angie Goff, thank you for being with us. A couple of things to finish with you, Jack Horgan Jones, of the Irish Times. The government has been clear, particularly Michal Martin, that we will not set a cap or a limit on the amount of those coming from Ukraine who need our assistance. But is this essentially going to be a backdoor way of closing the door? Uh, short answer, yes. I think so. Um, I don't think... So there's a, there's a piece of European legislation called the Temporary Protection Directive. Don't want to bore the ears off your listeners. But that basically is the piece of legislation that allows people fleeing the war in Ukraine to live, work and travel within the EU. And under the Temporary Protection Directive, I don't think you can put a cap on. So it's not possible uh, under the various strictures that we operate within. But the point that people in government make about this is that there are different interpretations of a member state's obligations underneath that directive. And that when you look across the rest of the EU, people offer less generous interpretations. There's even examples of people, you know, offering cash to people uh, from Ukraine to to fly back, um, you know, ways to get them basically off the books. So there is a feeling that there is latitude within what is permissible or allowable under the Temporary Protection Directive that allows us to change the offering while still coming under the umbrella and not having to introduce something as as crude and as potentially kind of damaging from a reputational point of view as putting a cap on. The state has put about €2.5 in place to, to pay for all of this, which is a significant sum of money. How much as well of this political rancor now is perhaps motivated by the realisation that all around the country this could become a major issue in the local elections next June? Well, I think that is an ever-present thing. I remember when the when the, the alt-right or the far-right protests kicked off at the start of this year, I was talking to one person at Cabinet and they said that the, the big change politically here is I think I'm going to have to have an answer on migration politics when I, when I knock at people's doors, whether it's in the local and Europeans or whether it's in a general election. And I think that that's part of it. It's been sporadic. It's come and it's gone. But I do think it's part of the political mainstream now. What is your stance on migration issues? What would you do in government? How would you change things? How would you adjust it? So I do think it is, as I say, part of the political mainstream and I think it's something that at every level government is preparing to accommodate and think about going forward. Jack Horgan Jones from the political staff of the Irish Times. Thank you. We had Angie Goff from helping Irish hosts as well. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-